Well, good morning and happy Easter to you. This is my favorite day of the year. Uh, of course, it's a little different this year, of course, but uh, it's good to be with you. And thank God for technology. I was thinking about it earlier today. If this pandemic would have happened 10 or 15 years ago, how much harder it would have been then? Because we didn't have the kind of technology we do now. We wouldn't have been able to worship together digitally like we're able to this year. There's another reason I'm glad uh, it didn't happen 10 or 15 years ago, and that's because 10 or 15 years ago, my kids were, were very young. And as much as I love them and loved them then, I, I know it would have been hard to be stuck in a house with them all day and all night with no breaks at all. And so right now, I, my heart goes out to all you parents with, with little children. Uh, right now, this, this time of quarantine must seem really long. Just keep in mind that the, the time you're spending with your kids, although it can be frustrating and exhausting, God's using that to pour into your kids, and it's going to pay benefits in years to come. I think about uh, parents of small children. I think about people who live alone and how lonely this time must be. I think about people who are struggling financially, and we hope as a church to be able to help with some of those needs in the days ahead. I think about people who are sick and, and those who are who are going to get sick in days ahead. I, what it comes down to is we're in a time where we desperately need hope. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. We're, we're looking at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And it's not a passage specifically about Easter, but it is a passage about hope. Now, many of you already know that I enjoy movies, and I've seen a lot of them. And one of the things that I've discovered about movies is the end of the movie makes a big difference in how good the movie turns out to be. You can have a a terrific story, but if it ends poorly, then it's not going to be a great movie. And and this is the problem with some of your TV movies. Uh, Ladies, I'm not trying to start a fight, but your Hallmark movies, for instance, very wholesome, very sweet, and can be entertaining, and I don't have a problem with people who watch them, but, but my problem is usually when I sit down to watch one of those with my wife or whoever, well, let's face it, with my wife, it can figure out what's going to happen before it ever happens. I mean, just to give you an example, I mean, let's say uh, in one of those movies, uh, there's this handsome guy with a kindergarten-age kid, moves into a new town, the kindergarten teacher there is beautiful, but has always had problems with romantic relationships, and right from the start, you know those two are going to get together. I mean, I could write that story. So a really great movie You can be entertained by a movie that you've got figured out from the start, but a movie that's going to stick with you, that you're going to remember the rest of your life, has to end well. And there's three basic kinds of movie endings I've discovered. There's the bittersweet ending, and that's the kind of movie where things don't turn out the way you hoped they would. The the couple doesn't get together in the end. The, The good guy doesn't win. But it ends in a way that you think later on, looking back on it, okay, that makes sense. That's appropriate. That that all that holds true. And you're talking about Gone with the Wind, you're talking about Casablanca, Schindler's List, even The Dark Knight. And then there's movies with a surprise ending. And those are the movies that we never forget because something happens at the end that changes our whole perspective and helps us to see the whole rest of the story in a way we didn't see before. And there you're talking about Planet of the Apes, you're talking about Psycho, The Usual Suspects, The Sixth Sense. And then there's the movies with the satisfying ending. 
And these are the movies that aren't just a, a good ending, or isn't just a happy ending, but it's an ending where you don't see it coming. You don't see how the hero can possibly win. You don't see how love can possibly triumph over hate and evil. And it does. It does in a way that makes sense, that all comes together at the end and, and leaves you feeling incredibly satisfied. And that's most sports movies. That's Remember the Titans and The Natural, and that's Rudy. But it's also movies like It's a Wonderful Life and The Shawshank Redemption, which for my money are, are the two best movie endings ever. And the thing, about, the thing about movie endings is the way you end a movie determines how you write the script for the rest of the story. In other words, if, you wanna, if you're going to end with a bittersweet ending, then you have to write your story in such a way that that ending is the only way it could possibly happen. So we have to know at the end of Gone with the Wind why Rhett and Scarlett don't end up together. We have to know why at the end of Casablanca, Elsa gets on the plane with Victor instead of staying in Casablanca with Rick. If there's a surprise ending, the, the script writer has to hold back uh, uh, some key information until the very, very end. You can't give anything away, otherwise, otherwise the ending is spoiled. And, and I'm not going to give you examples of how any of these movies do it, because these are the kinds of movies which, if someone tells you the ending before you go, I'm not an attorney or anything, but I think if you kill that person, then it's considered justifiable homicide. Again, don't quote me on that. And if, you're, if you want to make a movie with a satisfying ending, you have to write it in such a way that it builds suspense, that it doesn't look like there's any possible way that good is going to triumph over evil and love is going to win out overall. And it does. So it determines everything. The way you end the story determines everything. Now we're finishing up a, a, a sermon series called His Story today. Because today's Easter. We started at the beginning of the year talking about the, the grand narrative of Scripture, how every story in the Bible adds up to one big story. And, and we've looked at, at the coming of the Messiah, and we've looked at Jesus getting here and, and the life that he taught us to live, but today we wrap up that particular, Bible, that particular sermon series and think about how on Easter Sunday we celebrate the greatest ending to the greatest story ever told because it looked like a bittersweet ending, didn't it? If you would have been here in the first century, you would have thought, well, Jesus the hero is dead. The greatest man who ever lived is gone. He's been yet another victim of injustice, and his movement is scattered. I guess, I guess he didn't do any good after all. And then it turned into a surprise ending, because three days later, he was alive again. And that made us reevaluate everything about him. Then we understood, oh, he wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a miracle worker. He wasn't even just the Jewish Messiah. He was actually the Son of God. And then over time, as the Holy Spirit came and explained to us what the Old Testament was really about and all those prophecies we'd either missed or misinterpreted, we suddenly understood that it was the most satisfying ending it could possibly be because Jesus, Jesus died for us and that brought us life. Jesus took our place on the cross. Jesus rose again and that meant we don't have to fear death or hell ever again. So again, today we're ending our series, His Story, and, and that grand narrative of the Bible, how every story in the Bible adds up to one big story. And you're going to see that the ultimate satisfying ending is still to come. Easter Sunday is the greatest day in human history yet, but there's an even greater day out there that's coming, and that's what we want to talk about today. But first, I want to ask you a very important, very personal question, and I want you to be very honest with yourself. How do you want your story to end? 
if God gave you the ability to write the script of your life, what would be the happy ending you would write into your story? For some of you, it would be, I want to be the very best at what I do. I want to make my mark on this world. I want to live a life that counts, that makes an impact on this world for good. For some of you, it would be, I want to provide well for my family. I want to get to a certain standard of living so that my spouse, my kids, my friends are provided for well. For some of you, it would be, I just want to be happily married. For others, it would be, I want my kids to be happy and successful and, and, and to live out the life God placed them here to, to accomplish. For others, it would be, I, I just want my, my family near me. I want my kids and my grandkids to live near enough that I can see them on a regular basis. And for others, it might be more of a, a national mindset. I want this country to, to continue to be strong. I want, this, I want this nation to always have wise and, and God-fearing and, and good and generous and brave leaders and for us to always be the number one country on earth. There's, there's all kinds of things you could choose. And, and, and really, all of those choices are good. But there's only one ultimate hope. See, what I'm really asking you is, what is your ultimate hope? What is the thing you are most rooting for to happen in your life? We can desire lots of things, and I'm sure you do, but every one of us has one ultimate hope. And what your ultimate hope is determines the course of your life. It determines how you live, just like the ending of a movie determines how the scriptwriter writes the story. And I'm here to tell you, there's only one ultimate hope that is worthy. There's only one ultimate hope that cannot possibly fail, that is guaranteed to happen. There's one, only one ultimate hope that will not disappoint. And that's what we talk about. That's what we read about in Titus 2, 11 through 14. Paul writes to his friend Titus and says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So according to that scripture, what is our ultimate hope, or as Paul calls it, our blessed hope? It's the appearance of Jesus Christ. That word appearance in Greek is the word epiphany. And you've probably heard that word. If you grew up in certain Christian traditions, epiphany was something you celebrated after Christmas time. It was, it was the reminder of the birth of Jesus and his being dedicated in the temple. And it is used that way one time in the New Testament. But actually, five other times, that word is used to refer to the second coming, the return of Jesus. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Our ultimate hope is the return of Jesus. That's what we should be most excited about. That's what we should gear our thinking towards. Now, what I want to do with the rest of our time together is explain, number one, why that's the case, why that should be our ultimate hope. Number two, how it will change the way we live if that becomes our ultimate hope. And number three, what we need to do to rewrite the ending of our story, what we need to do to change our ultimate hope. So let's start with that first question, why? Because I know the minute I said that our ultimate hope needs to be the return of Jesus, some of you mentally checked out on me. You rolled your eyes because you think you've got in your mind the kind of person whose ultimate hope is the second coming. Last year, I read a bestseller, a book called Educated by a young woman named Tara Westover. Uh, Tara was 
raised in a family where the dad was obsessed with the end times, and he was convinced that the end of days was going to happen any moment, and you needed to be ready. And so they lived in a remote area of Idaho on the side of a mountain. They stockpiled weapons. They canned their own food. Uh, Tara was not allowed to go to school until, as a young adult, she actually uh, broke her parents, uh, went against her parents' wishes, and enrolled in college. And that's what a lot of us think of when we think of people whose ultimate hope is the second coming. We think of people who are paranoid, people who are just a little strange and who make bad decisions. Or we think about people who are well-intentioned, but they're so obsessed with the prophecies of Scripture that they think they can interpret those prophecies in current-day events. And so every time they watch the news, they, they just think every war that breaks out, every natural disaster that happens, even this pandemic, well, that's obviously a sign that Christ is about to return. Even though Matthew 24, Jesus clearly says there will be wars and rumors of wars, there will be natural disasters, plagues, don't get excited. These are just the beginning of the birth pains. And so we see people who misuse the idea of the return of Christ. And it brings a lot of disrepute upon his cause. Because really, people like that seem like the first-class passengers on the Titanic, whose attitude was, as long as there's a spot for me on the lifeboat, I don't care if this whole thing's going down. And I'm telling you, those people are wrong about the end. They're wrong about what the Scriptures say. I want to read you just one passage that talks about what is to come for us. And maybe then you'll get an idea of why we should be so excited about the return of Christ. This is found in Revelation 21, 1 through 5. This is actually a vision that God gave to John, uh, Jesus' beloved disciple. So he saw what's going to happen as soon as Christ returns. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And if that doesn't get you excited, then I don't know what to say to you. The, the exciting thing for me is there's a lot more where that came from. In the New Testament, there are actually 300 different references to the second coming of Christ. That's just in the New Testament. That means that one out of every 13 verses in the New Testament is about Christ's return. So obviously, this is something that Jesus talked about a lot, that the, the apostles thought about all the time that that first generation of Christians was excited about, and we should be too. And, and what I want to show you is, when Jesus talked about the end, when the apostles talked about the end, heck, when the, when the Old Testament prophets talked about the end, it wasn't about, let's all get out of here so this world can go up in smoke. It was, Christ is coming back. God is coming. The day of the Lord is on its way, and this world is going to be remade. It's not about evacuating this world. It's about redeeming this world. And, and the really good news is, the devil doesn't win in any sense. God's ultimate, God's original creation gets redeemed, and it's, it's better than it ever could have been. It's going to be a world with no war, no disease, no racism or family dysfunction or natural disasters. It's going to be a, a huge reunion. We're going to see the people that we thought we'd lost forever, but they'll be there. And there won't be the kind of, the kind of 
uh, petty squabbles that divided us before, the kinds of things that caused us to, to separate for days and weeks and, and months and years. We'll come together with people and, and we'll never lose them again. We'll know them like we've never known them before. Most of all, it's going to be a time when we finally, fully experience an unfiltered relationship with God. And that's not just religious-sounding language. God is the source of all joy, all love, all beauty. Can you imagine being in the presence of unfiltered joy, beauty, and love all the time? That's what it will be like. It's going to be a world of, of endless discovery. You'll never stop learning new things. It's going to be a world of exploration, finding new places, going places you could never have gone in this life, fulfilling work to do, complete rest, sleeping well, and true celebration. It's going to put to shame everything you ever thought was fun or necessary or, or, or perfect in this world. You're going to look back uh, on, on things you enjoyed in this world and think, how could I ever have enjoyed that when, when this was waiting for me? The Christian philosopher Neil Plantinga, I like the way he put it, he says, the second coming is good news for anyone whose world is full of bad news. And isn't that us today? I mean... I recommend that Christians, or anybody for that matter, don't watch any more than 30 minutes of news a day because it'll get you down. But every time you see bad news, it's just a reminder there's a better world coming. There's a world with, where, where things are fair, they are right, the, where everything sad comes untrue. And that's what we should put our ultimate hope in. Don't you think that's better than any of the other stuff I mentioned earlier? Than anything else you can possibly dream of? Put your hope in that. So that's the why. That's the why the return of Christ should be our ultimate hope. Now, how will it change us? Well, the, the passage we read in Titus 2, 11 through 14 explains that. It, it tells us three things that it will change. Number one, it'll, it'll cause us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And, and what that means is when Christ's return is your ultimate hope, you're going to want to get rid of anything that is not going to be acceptable in that new world. And the way I look at it is this. Imagine you're a young man, and you're engaged to be married to a beautiful, wise, gracious young woman. And there's only one problem. She's deathly allergic to tobacco smoke, and you're a chain smoker. Now, forget about the mechanics of how these two people got together. This is just an illustration. Work with me. I want you to ask yourself, what would you do if you're that young man? You've got two options. On the one hand, you could say, well, after our wedding day, I'll never get to smoke again, so I'm going to smoke as much as possible now. Or you could say to yourself, I'm going to quit smoking now because I want to spend as much time as possible with her right now. I know we're going to be married someday. I know we can't live together yet. I know we can't be husband and wife yet. But still, I want to be in her presence. I want my life now to resemble what my life is going to be like then as much as possible. Let me tell you, if you've ever been in love before, you know that option two is the one you're going to choose. So if, if your ultimate hope is the return of Jesus, you're not going to have the attitude of, well, I might as well eat and drink for tomorrow I may die. You're not going to have the attitude of, well, I'm going to have fun now. Life is short. No, you're going to say to yourself, the real joy starts when Christ returns. So right now, I'm going to start living as much as possible like I'm going to live then. I want to enjoy the fruits of that life as much as I can right now. You'll renounce ungodliness. You'll get rid of the things that separate you from him, that keep you from being in his presence. 
Not because you're afraid you're going to get rejected otherwise. You, if you are his child, you're his child because he accepted you by grace alone. It's not because you're afraid of rejection. It's because you love him and you want your life now to resemble your life then as much as it possibly can. Number two, he says, if that is our hope, then we will live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Now, I know those words don't sound all that appealing. In fact, they sound like the kind of stuffy religious people that we don't want to admit it, but we don't really enjoy being around. But the word upright in the English Standard Version, which is what I'm reading, it it actually is the Greek word dikaios, and that's a word that's literally translated just, justice. Now, I know justice has become a politically charged word today, and people use it in all kinds of political ways, but justice is a highly biblical concept. And, and what it means in Scripture is this. Bruce Waltke, New Testament scholar, defines it this way. Justice is disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of your community. Injustice is advantaging yourself at the disadvantage of your community. So think about uh, our social distancing practices right now. That's a form of justice. You're, you're disadvantaging yourself. You're choosing to be cooped up in your own home and to avoid going to restaurants, to avoid doing the things that you would ordinarily do. Why? Because you want to protect your community in the same way and in an even greater way. When you, when you sacrifice, spend less so you can donate to someone who's hurting, to donate to a charity or to donate to our church's benevolence fund so we can help people who are struggling with their finances that's justice. When you call your neighbor and you say, listen, I'm out of food, so I'm going to go to the store. Is there anything you need? Let me shop for you so you don't have to get out and expose yourself. That's justice. And when we put our ultimate hope in the return of Jesus, we're going to want to live these lives of true justice because we know that the world to come will be a world of perfect justice. And we want our world now to start to resemble that world. We're ready for it to begin now. Number three, when we put our ultimate hope in the return of Jesus, we become a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That word zealous is a word we don't use very often because the word zeal, quite frankly, scares us, especially religious zeal. Religious zeal is what we associate with fundamentalism, and and religious fundamentalism causes so many problems from terrorism to hatred to judgmental attitudes and, and, and In fact, Kathy Keller wrote an article not long ago, talked about how she had read something that said that the biggest problem in the world today is religious fundamentalism. And she said, well, it depends. It depends on what your fundamentals are. See, religious fundamentalism can indeed be one of the most destructive things on the face of the earth. It causes wars, it causes acts of violence, it causes families to fracture. Even Christian fundamentalism can be a destructive thing. A Christian fundamentalist is someone who essentially takes his own interpretation of the Bible and makes it God's and says, anybody who disagrees with me in the way I read Scripture, anybody who doesn't follow the same practices I follow, anybody who doesn't have the same convictions that I have on cultural items, that person is my enemy, and I must oppose them. And that's the attitude of the Pharisees. But on the other hand, if you're fundamental, not just about your breed of Christianity, But if you're fundamental about Jesus, then you're totally different. A person who's a fundamental, who's a a Jesus fundamentalist is someone who is zealous about loving their enemies, about forgiving people who've hurt them, about helping people who have nothing to offer in return, about lifting up the brokenhearted. They're, They're zealous about, most of all, 
showing a, a lost and dying world that the God who is real loves them just as they are, but refuses to leave them that way. And I don't care who you are. If you're the most strident atheist, if you're the most committed member of some other religion, you have to admit that a world full of people who are committed, zealous about living just like Jesus is a better world. And so when we make our ultimate hope, the return of Christ, we become zealous to be, to be like him. We become Jesus fundamentalists. Why? Because we know that everything we do for him right now lasts forever. Whereas everything we do for ourselves, it ends. It, it goes away. It's forgotten the moment our life is over. And so if we want our lives to count, if we want our lives to matter, we become fundamental about being just like Jesus. We become a people of his own possession, zealous for good works. So that's, that's the how. That's how it changes us when our, our ultimate hope changes to the return of Christ. Now, let's get into that last question briefly. What do we need to do to change our hope? Because it's not as easy as it sounds. It, it's sort of like deciding tomorrow that you're going you're gonna to like broccoli and more than chocolate or Brussels sprouts more than bacon. You can't just change the way you think. You need somebody bigger somebody more powerful than you to make that change in your heart. And that someone is God. So here's my challenge for you. And I really want you to do this. I want you, as soon as this service is over, take out a sheet of paper and write down a prayer. And I want you to put it in your own words. Now, I know pre-written prayers are probably not part of your uh, experience. If you grew up like me in a Baptist church, that's not something we did. We, we believed in spontaneous prayer. But there's nowhere in Scripture that says there's anything wrong with, with praying the words that someone wrote before you or that you wrote yourself. In fact, I've found that can be very useful in my walk with God. So what I want you to do is write out a prayer, a one- or two-sentence prayer that just says, Lord, I need you to change me. Here's the one I wrote down, just so you can use it as an example if you want to. Lord, you know my heart, and you know what I want more than anything else. But I know in my head that the best possible thing would be if you came back to be king of this world as soon as possible. So please change my heart to desire that more than anything else. Now, that may be wordier than you want to use. You use your own words. But write out a prayer that says, Lord, change my heart. Teach me to desire your return more than anything else in my life. I can still want other things. I can still desire other things. And if you give them to me, I pray that I would rejoice in them and enjoy them in a way that honors you. But, but make my ultimate hope your return. Would you do that? Would you write out that prayer? And then the next step is pray it. Pray it every day. Pray it every day for the foreseeable future. I'm not saying you got to do it every day the rest of your life. But pray it until you start to see some changes in your heart. Pray it until you start to see your ultimate hope start to change. And you're drawn to those passages in the Scripture that talk about the new heavens and the new earth and the return of Jesus. And, and you're getting excited about things other than the short-term things that drove you before. And you start to see yourself renounce ungodliness inside of you and, and to, to start walking in justice and caring about the world around you and, and to, to become zealous for good works, a Jesus fundamentalist. When that starts to happen, you know God is answering your prayer, and he will. So that's my challenge to you. Will you take it? Now, let me just wrap up by saying this. I know, I know it's hard for some of us to wrap our minds around the idea of judgment day being our ultimate hope, because that's really what we're saying. The day Jesus returns, everyone is going to stand in judgment. 
And that sounds scary. And some would say, how can that possibly be your ultimate hope? That sounds terrifying. That doesn't sound like a day to look forward to. It sounds like a day to fear. And I would agree with you except for one thing. And this one thing is that on that day, the Bible assures us of this. This is guaranteed. On that day, when we see our judge take his seat, to sit on that judgment seat before all of creation, we will know that the same judge who is sitting on that judgment seat is the one who hung on the cross. The same one who stands before us to judge us is the same one who willingly walked into the arms of the soldiers who arrested him and beat him and then handed him over to the Romans who hung him on the cross. In other words, our judge has already been judged. In other words, everything that you've ever done that you're ashamed of, everything that I've ever done that I would be afraid might be exposed someday. All of that stuff, Jesus already knows it. He's already paid for it. He's already gotten it out of the way. Our judge is also our savior. Therefore, we have nothing to fear. Therefore, we are free. Therefore, we have every reason to rejoice. Therefore, we have an ultimate hope that cannot fail. We have a blessed hope.